Our text today is actually 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. And we'll be reading it as we study together. But uh, if you glance over these verses, this is a really depressing passage. Uh, I called this message The Hard, Harsh Truth, but I also considered the title The One Passage I'd Rather Not Preach. Thank you very much. Uh, I think the church staff entitled it, Let's Give This One to the Old Retired Guy. One person said, if he submitted 2 Peter chapter 2 to a Christian publication for printing it, uh, they would, they would, <laughs> they would, there's not a chance that they would accept it as an article. And, and here's what would be written on the rejection slips. Too harsh, too judgmental, too negative. Where's the grace? Where's the love? Well, there's truly not a lot of grace and love or hope in these verses as they stand by themselves. But there is a lot of truth. These epistles were letters that were intended to be read at one sitting. Now, we study them, and the the hope and the grace is really throughout the whole of 2 Peter. But as we dig deeper into a certain passage, you do have to slow down so that the sermon, the study, takes on the contours of the passage that you're studying. And it should. That's a good thing. But as it takes on the passage that you are studying... Uh, by the way, I used to have a cartoon, I've told you about it, I used to have a cartoon in my office years ago of a pastor on his knees in earnest prayer saying, and oh God, please give me a text to go with this great joke. So that's, I mean, but the contours of a, of a sermon should take, should reflect the passage that you're studying. And when that happens, over time you are exposed to what Scripture calls the whole counsel of God. Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, and and by the way, get this, it was while he was warning them against false teachers, which is what we see in our text today, he said, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God, my friends, includes some dark parts. Like today's passage. And I want you to keep in mind, though, that dark passages like this were given so that we can avoid the darkness, so that these warnings will be tucked away in your mind. These warnings will protect you. These warnings will protect your family, your husband, your wife, your children, your grandchildren. These warnings will protect anyone in your life who is spiritually vulnerable. So we need to listen up. Now, Looking at the flow of this book and the context before, look back in chapter, uh, chapter 1 for just a moment. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, we see in verse, uh, verses 12 and following, Therefore, says Peter, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. In verse 13, I'm stirring you up by way of a reminder. In verse 15, call these things to mind. And guess what? At the other end of our text, look in chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the words spoken by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your 
apostles. So what is it that he is reminding them of? He is reminding them of the gospel and how the gospel radiates out into other doctrines and the ways in which we are to live our lives before a watching world. What is the gospel that we are to remember? The Lord's Supper is a picture of the gospel. What do we do when we partake of the Lord's Supper? We remember Him. Jesus Christ, God's Son, was born, took on, uh, God's Son took on human flesh so that He could die in our place. 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Who was He? The Son of God went to the cross for us. And how is in, in that death, burial, and resurrection, God redeems us when we accept that by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should, bo- should boast. Titus 3, 5, it's according to his mercy that he saved us, not according to works of righteousness, which we've done. So being saved by grace through faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, and how we accept that gift with empty hands. Now, what happens when that gospel is distorted by false teachers? Paul dealt with this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another of, of the same. Only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. But listen to what he says. Even if we or an angel from heaven, so angels are brought into this, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And he mentions that again. Let him be accursed. So you see what what he is saying here. Even if I were to come back to you, even if an angel were to come down from heaven to you and give you, and, and give you, you as gospel something other than what you have received, that is accursed from God. God will not tolerate the tolerance of false doctrine. He will not tolerate the tolerance of a false gospel. But here's the problem. False teachers will infiltrate the church in ways that are undetected, and that is clear from Scripture over and over. My understanding is they don't start out broadcasting, Hi, I'm Tom. I'm your false teacher today. It just doesn't happen that way. They, instead, they ensnare immature believers. And they ensnare them with two things in today's passage. Those two things are money and sex. And after they've gotten their victims to think a certain way about their desires for comfort, money, and their desires for pleasure, sexual gratification, then the hook is set for the victim to be reeled in. So here we come to our passage today. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 10, through the end of the chapter. And I've never given quite an outline like this, but I'm going to give you an outline. In verses 10 through 14, false teachers, though posturing themselves above angels, are compared to wild animals. I repeat that. False teachers, though posturing themselves above angels, are compared to wild animals. In verses 15 and 16, false teachers are compared to Balaam, who was below an animal. His donkey had more spiritual discernment than he did. 
false teachers are compared to Balaam, who is below an animal. And then in verses 17 through 22, false teachers are compared to themselves, exposed for who they are, animals. Lots of animals here. Let's, let's start by reading verses 10 through 14. And uh, in verse, verse 9, and I'm picking up from where Lewis left off two weeks ago, speaking about the unrighteous who are under punishment for the day of judgment. They're described in verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Then he describes them in great detail. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. I'll stop right there. So the, the first point, verses 10 through 14, false teachers, though posturing themselves above angels, are compared to wild animals. Now, as I mentioned before, Lewis described the people in the first part of the verse a couple of weeks ago, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and they, desire, and they despise authority. These are false teachers who display personal arrogance, who are absorbed in self-fulfillment. They think they're in charge of their own destiny and they disregard not only God's authority, they disregard God's order of things, including things that are way above their pay grade in the domain of angels. Verse 10 continues, daring, which means presumptuous, self-inflated, self-willed, arrogant, therefore defiant. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Stop. Wait right there. Immediately we run into a question. Who are the angelic majesties? Peter is referring here to fallen angels who were created for majesty. Angelic glories or majesties is not an ethical description of them. It's a creation statement. These beings, also called demons elsewhere, have rejected what they were created for. Jude describes them, and we get more information there. But for our purposes today, notice that people... I'm sorry, that, that Peter lays out a contrast in verse 11. Whereas angels who are great, greater in might and power, greater. Greater than whom? Greater certainly than the false teachers, but also greater than the fallen angels whom they will one day conquer, as Scripture tells us. Greater, these good angels do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So these good angels don't render judgment until the judge so decrees. It's not their place. He's the judge. Scripture makes it clear that God has given good angels power over the demonic angels. But until then, and, and remember that Jesus said that hell was not created for humans, although humans will go there. They, hell was created for the devil and his angels. 
Until then, until that day of judgment, God's plan continues to unfold. Now, that's what the text says. What does it mean? I mean, aren't false teachers and demonic spirits on the same team? What could that mean? What possible circumstances would cause a false teacher to revile a fallen angel? I'm not sure. But maybe when questions are raised about their teaching, their response was to mock the devil and to prove they're on God's side and oppose Satan. Or, or maybe they're putting out their street creds on display as being powerful warriors on God's side. They're going to defeat Satan publicly, tell Satan what to do, which will impress their followers. I, I don't watch so-called Christian TV, actually, and maybe there's some good there mixed in with the bad, I don't know. But I've read that some claim authority to stomp on the devil and to bind the demons. I, I seriously, seriously doubt that any genuine spiritual warfare takes place in front of a TV camera uh, for entertainment before they ask for money. I mean, don't even watch that stuff. Just don't do it. Much less give to their ministry because, you know, if you don't, Satan will gain the victory. Just send your money. We're barely holding on, and your gift will make the difference. Satan will be defeated, and God will bless you with more money. And we'll send you a prayer cloth. Now, we don't bind Satan. Jesus does. But here's what is clear. These false teachers not only have no idea what God is like, they also have no idea what evil is really like. They think they have no accountability after this life, that they're exactly where Satan, but they're exactly where Satan wants them to be. They pretentiously assume that they have authority over suprahuman beings. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know how to think about this. Imagine the demonic spirits salivating until the final judgment of false teachers saying, welcome, do you remember reviling me? Their end is indeed worse than can be imagined according to this text. Now, you do know that there is no camaraderie in hell. Sin feeds upon itself. It is self-consuming. It's self-cannibalistic. Well, my imagination is going beyond our text, so let's get back to verses 12 through 14. The false teachers are explicitly compared to animals. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. And the idea here is, they harmed others, therefore God will harm them. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime, these men are so arrogant and so self-absorbed that rather than sin under the cover of darkness, they think that they're just fine. They're going to take their, their pleasures anytime, anywhere, anyplace. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. And the, the word carouse probably means feast. The idea here being meal that the church would enjoy together before they partook of the Lord's Supper where they were remembering Jesus. There's no conscience here. 
There's no Holy Spirit in these people. The description of their sin continues in verse 14. Having eyes full of adultery, which means they have this mentality. They look at every woman and wonder what she'd be like in bed. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Victims, unstable souls are victims who belong to God, but they're unstable, they're vulnerable, they don't have enough mileage on their faith yet to know spiritual deception when they see it. Look at the next phrase. Having a heart trained in greed. Our, the word trained, is we get our gymnasium from it. As one person put it, they're getting their hearts in shape for greed. They're getting pumped up for greed. So you get, take normal greed and then supersize it. The next phrase, accursed children. And in case you're wondering what Peter thinks of them, this is an expostulation. Accursed spawn. Not a pretty picture, is it? Have I ever heard of people like this? Yes, quite a lot. Have I ever met anyone like this? I'm not sure. I think so. Uh, probably so. In fact, in 1999, uh, when Betsy and I bought our house, we bought it from a Baptist evangelist. He put uh, the house that we bought now, we live, in, we live in, he put it on the market because the Lord told him to move to Independence, Missouri, and that he'd find out when he got there what his ministry was supposed to be. Now, I had never experienced leading like that from God and uh, felt a little jealous about it. And uh, I remember wondering at that time, as I have many times, many times, what's missing from my walk with God that I need to give attention to? Uh, I, but I remember having those thoughts. Four, year, four years ago, I thought I'd look him up to see if he was still there and how he was doing. I, I had forgotten where he was moving to, and it occurred to me once. So I looked him up, his name, and, and there he was uh, in every picture in a suit, an orange jumpsuit. And I thought, that, that can't be right. And it was. He became a pastor, had an affair with the wife of his best friend in the church, shot the husband, pretending it was a robbery, making it look that way, conducted the funeral with tears. And uh, then he and the woman were planning his wife's murder, which was going to look like a car wreck. Uh, in between then, he got caught, and he's now doing life. It made the national news, in fact, it made the international news, it was in BBC, and uh, ABC's 2020 did a whole segment on it. I'm really glad they didn't come back and interview the person who bought his, my house, <laughs> our house, God's house, sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> but here's the thing, I had no thought that he was anything other than what he claimed to be. Verses 15 and 16. False, here's the, remember their next point. False teachers are compared to Balaam, who was below an animal. His donkey had more spiritual discernment. Verse 15 says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, 
who loved the wages of righteous, unrighteousness. That's greed, friends. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. I love verse 16. It's, it's a one-verse summary of Numbers 22 to 25, all there in one verse. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet of God, supposedly, who became morally bankrupt. He loved money, and he loved the lifestyle it would give him more than he loved God. Balaam used two enticements, sex and money. God enabled, uh, God inhabited a dumb animal to expose how dumb Balaam was. And the donkey became the voice of sanity. Now, here's Peter's point. Balaam was motivated by greed. He couldn't comply with what King Balak, the enemy king, wanted him to do, which was to curse Israel. But he had an alternative suggestion to Balak. Give me money, and I will tell you how to take them down. And here it was. Entice the Israelites to no-fault sex, and then God will judge them. And that's how you'll take them down. Listen to the outcome. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Sex was the hook. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, and the anger of the Lord blazed against Israel. Balaam's strategy worked, and Balaam is in hell. So far in our outline, verses 10 to 14, false teachers, though posturing themselves above angels, are compared to wild animals. In verses 15 and 16, false teachers are compared to Balaam, who had less discernment than an animal. Uh, And if you haven't had enough, you need to know Peter's not done yet. There's more, verses 17 through 22. And, And these verses are, in my mind, kind of like the escalation of descriptions Uh, really of horror stories, as they swirl down and down and down a drain coming faster and faster until you end up at the bottom. And the closer to the bottom, the faster the whirl, where you end up at the bottom with dog vomit and swirl. So, uh, uh, swill. Verses 17 through 22, false teachers are compared to themselves, exposed as animals. Verse 17 These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. So springs without water, mists. They promise good water, in other words, but they give nothing because they've got nothing to give. For whom the black darkness, that's God's judgment, has been reserved. Speaking For speaking out arrogant words, bombastic words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them, that is their victims, freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For what, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So just take a look for a moment back at Peter's list. These false teachers have taken all the good gifts from God and destroyed them by distorting them. God has given us freedom in Christ to follow him. 
any man's in Christ, he is free indeed, right? They twisted that freedom into the freedom to sin all you want and thus trample on grace. God has given us the capacity to develop habits to honor him and habits that help us flourish, not habits that become addictions. God has given us sex as a means of oneness, of love, to understand the oneness within the Trinity, to understand the unity of Christ and the church, to promote the family, not, not to distort to sexual abuse or sex outside of the covenant of a one-man, one-woman marriage for life. God has given us work. Our jobs make money so that we may enjoy some of the physical comforts we may enjoy the beauty, we have the leisure to do that, and also have the means to help others, not using greed as an end in itself to destroy others and to destroy ourselves by the pursuit of money which we've allowed to become an idol in our lives. Verse 20, For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world, by knowledge of the Lord Jesus of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed to them. Now these verses are very clear, but the application may be less clear because they raise a big question. Were these false teachers saved people who lost their salvation. The verses do say that they escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, at least you know, for a while there. And they've known the way of righteousness. Doesn't that mean they were genuine believers? No, I don't think it does. I don't think they were saved. Here's how the Apostle John describes them. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. They'd been there. Sounded like us, but they were not really of us. He doesn't say they lost being us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out. Then he says, little children, make sure that no one deceives you. Listen, Jesus, Peter, Paul, and John all say that the false teachers were on the inside. They were close enough to the gospel to understand what it was that they are distorting. They know Christian terminology. They know how to, how to speak church, how to speak Christianese. They, can, they get the language. But the terms Peter uses to describe them are not the terms that always and only speak of salvation. Now notice this. He doesn't say that they were saved. Or he doesn't use the word regenerated. He doesn't say they're children of God or sons of God or born again or redeemed. Those words always refer to salvation. None of them are used here. But here's a follow-up question. Can a genuine believer lose his or her salvation? No. Not because of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but instead because of the perseverance of the Savior with the saints. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Many other passages as well. In John 10.28, we are in Jesus' hand. He is not going to let us go. So you're, you're, you're not saved by your 
merit and you're not lost by your demerit, right? But as we have said many times, this doesn't mean that you can live out an apostate life. We just finished years studying through Romans and you go back and take a look at Romans 6 through 8. God expects us to follow him and to live lives that honor him. So what does Peter mean when he says of these people, the latter end is worse for them? It's because we are all judged according to the light that we receive and the light that we reject. Jesus said, these shall receive greater condemnation. He didn't say condemnation. He gave it a description. Others received condemnation. These received greater condemnation. Finally, Peter concludes with this with verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Jews had low opinions of both pigs and dogs. Um, So uh, dogs were mostly wild, and Gentiles were called Gentile dogs, if you remember that phrase. Paul described Jewish false teachers In Philippians 3, verse 2, beware of the dogs. That could be a yard sign, couldn't it? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the false circumcision. And he's talking about false teachers as the dogs. Very consistent here. Now, dog lovers like me should not get upset by the analogy. But it is true that a dog will return and eat its own vomit again. That's what all dogs do. And it's also true that you can get a pig cleaned up, douse it with perfume, put a nice big bow around its neck. But as soon as it sees a filthy mud pit, that's where it's headed. Peter's point is, given enough time, given enough time, the apostate will will revert to their true nature. It will show up. Now, some of you, but what, what if you're not given enough time? <laughs> and that's a problem sometimes. J. Vernon McGee had, uh, had a, a parable off of the parable of the prodigal son that I found, I found helpful in thinking about over the years. I've mentioned it to you before. He called it the parable of the prodigal pig. And here's how it goes. The prodigal son repented and said, I don't belong in this pig pen. I'm going to go home to my father. But he took, his, took one of the pigs with them. They'd become good friends. And, and uh, so this pig followed him to the father's house. And they got him all cleaned up. Maybe they put that perfume on him. Maybe they put a big bow around his neck. And he lived in the father's house for quite a while. But one day, one day he said, this is not my home. I don't belong here. I want to go back to my old man. So he, the pig returned to wallowing in the mire. Now, here's the, here was McGee's analogy. If the prodigal son had died in the pig pen, he wouldn't have been a dead pig. He would have been a dead son. And if the prodigal pig had died in the father's house, he wouldn't have been a dead son. He would have been a dead pig. But over time, over t- we don't know the hearts of men. And maybe McGee's analogy is helpful in understanding who's who, given enough time. 
but we're not always given enough time. As I mentioned earlier, people don't show up at church with name tags saying, hello, I'm Demas, I'll be your false teacher today. That just doesn't happen that way. God knows who's a false teacher and who's a victim. But here's the thing. And we're going to talk about this for a few minutes. Why is Peter so upset about this? Because he is. I'm going to read to you from Ezekiel 34. Just listen. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And the shepherds were the spiritual leaders who had sheep, the people under them. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool? You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you've not healed, the broken you've not bound up, the scattered you've not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but instead you've dominated them. And God condemns the false shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd who loves his sheep. The good shepherd knows them by name. The good shepherd leads them into places of peace and rest. The good shepherd is the one who gives his life for his sheep. And now, add to what, Peter, what Jesus told Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know it. Feed my sheep. And from Acts chapter 2 to the end of his life, that was what Peter was doing. He's been doing it for decades now. You understand why he's so upset? Because what upsets Jesus upsets Peter. Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. Jesus doesn't say, oh, you know, it's okay. Jesus also said, these shall receive greater condemnation. Peter is following up on Jesus' business. Now, as you look over this passage, you can just harvest some things. Not every false teacher will check every box. But here's some things to be on guard for. False teachers are not hypothetical. They are real. They have no respect for authority, either divine or demonic. They are greedy, self-serving. They use people for their own purposes, for their own gratification. They gathered their own following among the vulnerable. I've seen that happen. Jude 4 says they creep in unnoticed. Paul said the same thing. In uh, Acts 20, they may appear to oppose Satan. They arise, as we've said, from within the church. They appear to be knowledgeable and are recognized as teachers in some cases. Believers seem oblivious to their, to their poison. And possibly, possibly, we embrace them in the name of tolerance. The believers also provide the false teachers with a platform from which to spread their poison. They're driven by their own desires. They appeal to fleshly lusts. They appeal to success, avoiding pain, enjoying pleasure. And here's the thing. 
they may identify the gospel as true. But instead of embracing that truth themselves, they pivot and use the truth to entice and eventually hurt other believers. And then they distort and deny and defy the truth given enough time. There is nothing good here about these people. They are, there's nothing redeemable. Peter is not trying to win them back. They're done. Instead, he's warning those who are not caught up in their deception to avoid it at all costs. He's warning those who are caught up in it not to stay in it, but to run away from it, and also comforting them. God will rescue you from this. I'll tell you what's sobering about this passage. Some of the things in this passage, I mean, so far I've been talking about them, they. Some of the things in this passage fit me, Gary Phillips. My motives are never unmixed. Now, what I mean is, Each one of us needs to be vigilant so that we don't distort God's truth. We don't place our personal pleasures, our personal pursuits above God's agenda because any of us can do that. We all have mixed motives. Now, ideally, as we grow in grace and knowledge, those motives will become less mixed more pure, more aligned with God's grace, more aligned with God's truth. But we can never avoid being vigilant. I am so thankful for the elders of this church who are very concerned that doctrine be clear and true. I'm very thankful for you in this church who hold us accountable for truth. That's as it should be. Now, looking at all this, it's really tempting to say, you know, no false teacher here fits, checks off every box. And therefore, it doesn't apply to anybody around us today. I don't know of anybody that fits all those. And when, when we say that, that way, I'm sure there are, but I don't know them, that way we can put off examining what we see on TV, what we hear on the radio, what we pick up in the Christian bookstore, and there's a lot of fluff there. Uh, what, what we hear in our own church we don't have to feel rude and, and we can feel relieved at not having the responsibility of saying, wait a minute, that's not accurate. That's not true. But Peter just does not let us off the hook and the history of the church does not let us off the hook. Some years ago, the elders asked me to preach a series on the emergent church and, and I did. Basically, the emergent Theology is the same as old liberal theology masquerading as evangelical by means of current buzzwords that are fuzzy on the margins. Uh, the modern buzzword seems to have changed from being emergent to being a progressive Christian, being progressive. Here's a description from one of their own, progressive pastor Dave Tomlinson in his book, The Post-Evangelical. Um, he, and he's describing here what the progressive church 
is moving away from and what he's moving to. And he's applauding this, church. He's applauding this. Moving away from a personal individual faith to harmony between personal and community faith. They don't talk about being saved or a personal relationship with Jesus. Moving away from propositional expressions of truth, moving to relational stories about faith journeys. See the, the vocabulary there. It sounds good. Relational stories about faith journeys. So they avoid doctrine, uninterested in exposition of passages. Away from the authority of Scripture alone, moving to a harmony between the authority of Scripture and the other ways that God will speak to Christians and give them new information. Away from a theology that prepares people for life and death and the afterlife to a theology of only life in which they shy away from anything about future judgment. Moving away from doctrinal truth to a search for spiritual experience. Sure does sound a whole lot nicer than 2 Peter 2, doesn't it? More inclusive. And here are some of the teachings. The denial of the doctrine of hell. Very hard to not deny that and affirm Jesus because Jesus talked about hell more than anybody in the New Testament. An affirmation of religious pluralism because in their view, God saves sincere believers in all religions. A softening on sexual ethics. God is okay with premarital sex. Hey, judge not. Judge not. It's rude. God is fine with the LGBTQ agenda. We're more inclusive, and so on, and so on. Our culture tells us, follow your heart. Follow your passions. Pursue your passions. Do what your heart tells you. Remember Debbie Boone's song from You Light Up My Life? There's a, a lyric in there. It can't be wrong because it feels so right. Yeah. Which explains why she now openly supports the LGBTQ agenda. Our culture clamors for tolerance. As long as it's in one direction. <laughs> There's precious little tolerance for a biblical worldview. You remember Theo Hobson's analysis of cultural decline? Here's how he put it. Something which had, be con had been condemned is now celebrated. Those who don't join the celebration are now condemned. Have you ever wondered how Christian organizations lose their spiritual, spiritual bearings, become liberal? How Harvard, Yale, Princeton lost their original mission of training people in the Word of God? I mean, look at the old Harvard seal. They changed it. Heresy does not happen from the outside. It happens from tolerant people on the inside. The evangelicals let them in. Recently, uh, we removed our church support from an organization that uh, bowed to pressure to indirectly support gay marriage. Their doctrinal statement did not change. They said they have not changed, but I'll make a prediction. I'm not a prophet. If you took a snapshot of that organization the year before they made that big concession and compare it to a snapshot 30 years from now, you wouldn't recognize them. 
public and almost all of our private schools have bowed to this pressure a long time ago. So, four closing thoughts to fonder. To, four, I'm getting my words mixed. Thoughts to ponder. Don't ponder them, ponder them. Number one, it's, it is unloving when you see someone leading, who is heading down the wrong path to say nothing. It is unloving to say nothing. If we allowed false teaching to be a part of this church, that would be the most unloving thing that we could do. It is more unloving not to tell the truth. Atheist comedian Penn Gillette respects people. He calls them the fundamentalist Christians who try to convert him. And he says, of all the other Christians, how much do you have to hate someone that you believe is headed for hell and not tell them the truth? That's a good question. Second, there is a sense of rightness when God judges people who have become, in his eyes, moral and spiritual animals. It's not gloating over them when they get what God says they deserve. Read Psalms. It's not a sense of, there, by the grace of God, go I, either. Because these people are enemies of God. And, and how does God view them? Not good. Not good. God will judge them. And we are not to, we are not to feel that it's unfair or anything less than glorious when he does execute judgment. We don't judge God. Third, truth is truth. It's not determined by how sincere you are, by what is culturally pleasing, or by the size of the peer group who happens to agree with you. Truth is truth, and it will stand. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. And I am so thankful, as I mentioned, for the elders and people of this church who will stand for truth, but we've got to be vigilant. And finally, God is in the business of protecting his own. The victims here are described as unstable souls. They're described as those who barely escape. But as God rescued Noah, and especially as God rescued Lot, who knew he was in the wrong place, then God will rescue his own. So my dear brother and sister, If you are tempted by these things, money, sex, power, any other means that will draw you into false teaching to adjust or adapt or deny that which you have affirmed. If you belong to Jesus, you will be deeply bothered by the direction that you're heading. And that tells you that you belong to him. But it also tells you, stop. He will help you come out of this temptation. Run away from it and run after truth because this is where he's going to take us in the next study. Remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. Remember, 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 remember. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you, Lord, for the dark side that exposes where we don't want to go, but also, Lord, that keeps us in the light. I ask that you would help us to be faithful to your truth. In Jesus' name, I pray this. Amen. Would you stand with me?